partially in the interest of keeping myself from weeping while preaching, uh, let's start with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we give thanks with grateful hearts because of your unspeakable faithfulness to us. It's not for our glory, but for yours, Lord. And I pray that today, that as we gather, as we sing these songs, as we celebrate, and, and even later as we celebrate with our anniversary dinner and fellowship together and look back over these 15 years of what you've done, remind us, it's not to us, but to your name that the glory belongs. What a beautiful name it is. What a wonderful and powerful name it is. Lord, as we come, as we sing, as we pray, as we open your word, break us. Break us, Lord. Remind us of the cost of our freedom. Lord, remind us of the death that brought us life. Father God, you know that uh, there are about a million things in my heart and mind today. So I ask that you would, <laughs> that you would help me to clear the mechanism. Father, in this moment for your glory set apart your servant as a vessel that we might forget the speaker and remember the word Lord help me to stay focused today to not preach my sermon but to preach yours prepare our hearts to receive it Give us hearts of flesh that we might be transformed by your eternal and glorious word today. All glory and honor and praise be unto your name. These things we pray in the name of your precious son, Jesus, who died in our place. Amen. <clears throat> okay, that was something. So, as we are continuing in our journey through the book of Luke, this is going to be our last uh, sermon in this series for a little while. We're going to take a break uh, through the Advent season, and we'll see some of Luke that we've already gone through as we go back and look at the, the coming of the Messiah, the coming of the Christ of God. But today, in this Dear Theophilus series, we've come to a chapter that is a major transition or it's part of a major transition in the earthly ministry of Christ. So as we go through this, there are several pieces that are really exciting. And I want to encourage you as you look at this, as we read through the Word together and we study this together, to see it in the context of the entire story, in the meta-narrative, the bigger story. So uh, as we do this, there is a point that binds these things together. And we're going to take a significant chunk 
resisting my urge to preach little pieces at a time, we want to see why Luke includes this story. Each of the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, each have a different perspective as they are writing. And as they include the same stories, they are making different points at times with those stories. So Luke is including some stories that are also included in Matthew and Mark, and he's connecting them for a reason as it carries along the meta-narrative, the bigger story. Today, we're going to talk about breakfast. Everybody have breakfast this morning before you came in? Because we're going to eat good this afternoon, but you've got to get there first. So you've got to be sustained. This is the most important meal of the day, right? You've got to come to church fueled up. Every Tuesday and Friday, we have a student prayer group that meets at the middle high school. And uh, we have sort of a, a, a tradition or a habit, uh, is probably more appropriate, that my brother and I have. After he drops his kids off for school and after I go and meet with the students for prayer, then we go by my mom's house for breakfast, which is usually more than three uh, each plate is more than three humans should really consume. Uh, there's about, wouldn't, wouldn't you agree, Jeff, there's probably about 8,000 calories in that breakfast before we ever start with the rest of the day. Uh, there's generally some eggs and some sausage, and it reminds me, as I'm going, looking at this particular passage, it reminds me of that breakfast and an old business adage, and some of you may be familiar with that. Now, as we have that sausage and eggs, I'm reminded that when it comes to breakfast, the chicken is involved, but the pig is committed. Amen? <laughs> that pig is all in. That's exactly the point that we're going to see in this chapter today. As we look at the first 27 verses of Luke chapter 9, we're going to see that level of commitment. And our core reality for today really drives this whole narrative. It's simply this, following Christ demands everything and gives even more. Following Christ demands everything and gives even more. Read that with me. Following Christ demands everything and gives even more. The reality is I can't live for Christ while I'm clinging to this life, the life that I know, the life that is comfortable, the life that makes sense to me. We are called to more than that. We're not called to be chickens in our Christian faith, but we are called, forgive this, to be pigs. Yes, sheep, but pigs, in that we need to be all in. And in truth, if we're honest, and far too often we're not, finding real life demands that we die. We don't like that part. And we've been very often sold this idea of a comfortable Christianity. But that's not at all what Jesus tells us is discipleship. With that, I want to draw your attention to the Word. If you don't have a Bible, you're going to want one. So uh, raise your hand if you don't have one, and Michael will make sure that you do. Just put your hand up. We've got Bibles here. You'll want to have it because this is God's Word, right? So if it's God's Word, that's significantly different than a human telling you what to believe. You want to know what God actually says. So we're going to walk through this together. I'm going to help connect the dots. That's really what the preacher does. Just tell the truth, tell what God says, and connect the dots. So we're going to try to do that today. 
It's going to be really helpful for you when you go into battle to have a sword. So uh, please make sure you have a, a Bible. If you're using an electronic device, the Wi-Fi information is in your program, so you can connect to that. We'll be walking through the first 27 verses. I won't have you stand, but we will read these. These are a couple of familiar stories. One in particular that I know, even if you haven't read this chapter, maybe you've never even read the Bible, you've heard about this story. You're familiar with it. But we want to kind of pan out. We want to be able to take a wide, broad, big view of this as we look at it. Remember that we've just come out of Jesus uh, healing a, a, a demon-possessed man or, or casting out, if you will, uh, demons many demons, a legion of demons, a mob of demons, if you have a message translation, uh, from this man who had been tormented. And they go into a herd of pigs, and the pigs get real committed real quick, because they all die. They all go down in, into the to Lake Galilee, and because that's what demons do. The devil is here to steal, kill, and destroy. And this man is reformed and transfor transformed and restored not reformed, but he's transformed and restored. And then in the process of, of going about his business, they come back across the lake, and Jesus is met by this crushing crowd, this, this Beatlemania kind of crowd that is pressing in on him. And the synagogue leader, the synagogue leaders have, have been opposed to Jesus. They're already deciding to kill him. They're already deciding that those who associate with him are going to be put out of the synagogue. And now the synagogue leader, Jairus, comes to him in desperation. My daughter is dying. Please come heal, or heal her. Jesus goes to heal her and on the way encounters a woman with a hemorrhaging of her own that has made her a pariah in addition to the physical ailment of it. And in the process of just walking her faith heals her, her faith in Christ. Jesus does the healing, her faith takes hold of it. Then he goes on, it's too late, Jairus' daughter is dead. But he raises her up. And we, we talked about faith developing through adversity. Jesus was preparing, not just the people, but he was preparing his disciples, specifically the twelve, but all who would follow him, all of his disciples, followers, apprentices, if you will, to be able to do what he had in store for them next. They needed to see adversity. They needed to walk through difficulty all the way back to when they were uh, in the storm and thought they were going to die and Jesus calms the storm. They needed to see that and experience that to know that Jesus really is the Lord of everything. That he is the master of all creation. Material and immaterial. That prepared them for what's going to happen right now. Let's take a look starting in verse 1 of chapter 9. Luke writes, When Jesus had called the twelve together, you'll remember that he had called apart twelve and, and set them apart as apostles, special, special messengers, easy for me to say. When he had called the twelve together, he gave them power and authority. Read that with me. He gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases. 
And he sent them out to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. He told them, take nothing for the journey. Now he's sending them out, right? He gives them power and authority. Now he sends them out. He says, take nothing for the journey. No staff, no bag, no bread, no money, no extra tunic. <clears throat> Whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that town. If people do not welcome you, shake the dust off your feet when you leave their town as a testimony against them. So they set out and they went from village to village preaching the gospel and healing people everywhere. Notice the order. Preaching the gospel has the prominence and healing people everywhere. Now Herod the Tetrarch, in verse 7, heard about all that was going on and he was perplexed because some were saying that John had been raised from the dead. You may remember throughout this story from the very beginning, John is introduced even before Jesus is introduced. Before Mary is told that she's going to have the Messiah, John's parents, Zechariah and Elizabeth, are told that they will have the forerunner of the Messiah, the great prophet who will come and announce him, who will prepare the hearts of the people to turn them from their wickedness to the Lord so that they'll be prepared for the Messiah to come. John stirs up some trouble because speaking truth does that. So John, speaking truth to power, ends up imprisoned, and Herod, not liking some of the things that John said, off with his head. So now we come back to this. <clears throat> now Herod the Tetrarch, verse 7, heard, all about, uh, heard about all that was going on, and he was perplexed because some were saying that John had been raised from the dead, others that Elijah had appeared, still others that one of the prophets of long ago had come back to life. But Herod said, uh, I beheaded John. Who then is this I hear such things about? And he tried to see him. It's interesting that it says he tried to see him. It's not he went after him to try to kill him. He tried to get an appointment. He tried to, to get close to him, tried to get to know him, tried to see him. <clears throat> but we don't have anything that shows us that he actually did. The story continues. So they've done their thing. Herod's tripping. Now, a story you're very familiar with. When the apostles returned in verse 10, they reported to Jesus what they had done. Then he took them, <coughs> excuse me, then he took them with him, and they withdrew by themselves to a town called Bethsaida. But the crowds learned about it and followed him. So they're trying to get away, trying to have some quiet time, just him and the boys, and when they get away, the crowds because of the celebrity that Jesus has gained, are following them. They track them down. Paparazzi kind of thing. He welcomed them. He doesn't chase them away. He welcomed them. <coughs> Pardon me. And spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who needed healing. <coughs> Verse 12. Late in the afternoon... The twelve came to him and said, Send the crowd away so they can go to the surrounding villages and countryside and find food and lodging because we're in a remote place here. Something weird happens in verse 13. At least it would be, be weird if we hadn't seen what happened in verse 1. He replied, You give them something to eat. They answered, We have only five loaves of bread and two fish unless we go and buy food for all this crowd. About 5,000 men were there, not including the women and children. That's a lot of folks, right? 
So, you know, there you have a little bit of sarcasm to Jesus. I don't know about you, but sarcasm in praying doesn't make a lot of sense to me. So being sarcastic with Jesus, the Messiah, they're already recognizing who he is, but they're a little sarcastic with him. Uh, sure, God, we're just going to go and buy some food for 10,000 people. No big deal. Uh, what do you got in your pockets there, guys? You know, no, they're just, come on. Come on, man. But he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. The disciples did so, and everybody sat down. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke them. Then he gave them to the disciples to set before the people. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. Now, that by itself is big enough. But that's just setting the stage for what happens next. Notice in verse 18. Once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the crowds say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist. Remember what Herod thought? Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. This incidentally is one of the ways that we can track what's going on in the narrative. When we see these repeated things, there's a book ending to it. So Luke is setting this up. It's not an accident that he's using the same words about Herod's, what Herod has heard from the people and what the people have said about Jesus in this particular thing. <clears throat> it's not an accident. There is a point here. It's connecting these stories together. Watch for that as you study the word on your own. Watch for those patterns, repeated words, repeated phrases, things that connect stories together. And perhaps it will change the way you read the word so that you're not just reading for what you're used to seeing, but you're reading for what the author is actually saying in their narrative or in their, in their writing. They say, some say, they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. Verse 20. What about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, the Christ of God. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. Weird, we'll talk about that. And he said, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders chief priests and teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Then he said to them all, <clears throat> excuse me, then he said to them all, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit his very self. If anyone is ashamed of me in my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God.
as we walk through this story together, what, what we need to be able to see is that the, the two scenes of what Jesus is doing is setting the stage to understand who he is and what he's calling us to. Not just those who are with him, but us today. And if we're going to understand this, we need to, to be able to see how these parts build to a climax. How do they build from what's going on when he sends them out to uh, what happens in the results of that to what happens when his celebrity brings crowds that his boys can't handle. Then what? So let's walk through this, and as we do, uh, we'll be able to fill in some blanks here and connect the dots for you. First thing we want to see right out of the gate as we're walking through this is that the deeds of disciples magnify the Messiah. The deeds of disciples magnify the Messiah. For whether we're talking about uh, the disciples then, or you and I today, if we are following Christ, then the things that we do and the ripple effects of those things point the spotlight at the one, the only one, who deserves the spotlight. It's not about us, it's about Him. So the things that we do should draw, and do if we are truly disciples, the things that we do draw attention to him. They magnify the Messiah. Now, notice what happens. He gives them power. He gives them authority. He, in, in other words, Christ, as authority over everyone and everything, delegates that authority. And delegating authority without giving power to fulfill that, that responsibility is only cruel. And you might know that if you've ever had a boss who gave you, uh, you know, a responsibility but didn't really give you the tools you needed to get that taken care of. So he gives them authority and says, go and, and do these things, cast out demons, cure people, the point being to preach the gospel. And he also gives them the power to be able to do that. They are speaking in his name, and the name of Jesus is the authority. So because they're coming on behalf of him in his name, the demons then submit to him. We'll actually see that later on. We're not going to get to that in today's sermon, but after Advent we'll come back and we'll kind of recap and see the same thing as it comes up. So Jesus gives them uh, power and authority to drive out all demons, to cure diseases, and he sends them out not, notice this, I would write this down or mark it in my Bible, he sends them out not to cast out demons and cure diseases. What does he send them out to do? He sends them out to preach the gospel, right? The purpose is to preach the gospel because people need the good news that they can be made right with God. That's what is necessary. Their job is to take the message that the kingdom is here, turn from your way to God's way, and He will make a way for you to be right with Him, even though you don't and can't ever deserve it. That's big news, right? So the, the delegation of power and authority to them is for the express purpose of bearing witness to their message. They don't have the scriptures as we do today. 
They don't have the authority, uh, the authority of the Word because the Word has not yet been written. They have the Old Testament Scriptures to appeal to, and the signs and wonders that are given to them to be able to say to folks, look, you want to you see that we're with Jesus? Here, we're going to help you out with these things. And he gives them the power to do that. And he told them, take nothing. This isn't about you being prepared. This is about you going in the name and the power. So you're going to go on my behalf. The Holy Spirit's going to care for you, going to prepare you. You've been training. You've been learning. You've seen it. Now it's your turn to go out and do it. We see elsewhere that they go out in pairs. They're not alone, but they go together. And as they go out, Jesus says, trust the Lord to carry you. Don't take your stuff. It's not about your preparation. It's about you submitting and letting the Father carry you, letting the Spirit empower you. It's an interesting thing in verse 5. If people do not welcome you, he's speaking about the particular villages that they're in. If people do not welcome you, then shake the dust off of your feet as you leave there. He'll come to this again later on, and and we'll see some more specifics to it. But it's a sign that Jewish people uh, of that time, that Israel would do essentially to say that we don't want the dirt of the world, we don't want the soil of the world in our, uh, in our nation. So if they would leave Israel to go into Gentile nations to do business or, or for whatever travel, when they would come back and enter the promised land again, they would symbolically shake the dust off their feet. I don't want none of the world coming with me. This is a holy place. And we're going to be holy people and set that apart because the Gentiles who reject the Lord don't belong in the holy place. So Jesus is saying, if you go to this village and you are rejected, notice he's still in Israel. Shake the dust off your feet. That is a sign to them, to these Jewish people, that they will be answerable to God. They will be left to their own devices just like the Gentiles. That's a big thing for Luke, by the way, because Luke, as the only Gentile writer of Scripture, focuses in on this reality that Jesus comes to the last, the least, and the lost. He comes to the outcast. The theme verse of this entire book is Luke 19.10. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. Luke gets that. As a Gentile, an outsider, wow. This is, this is awesome. He came for me. Before I, I was separated, but he came for me. And Jesus is, in this very statement, is saying everything that Paul will later say in his letters, that this is not for a, a people that are bound by ethnicity. You're not Abraham's seed because you happen to have the right birth certificate. You're Abraham's seed because you believe what he believed and you do what he did. So he's telling all of Israel, nope, if you don't accept the Messiah, you're not really Israel. You might live here, but you're not a part of it. Small but big. So he continues uh, continues to to say this, and in, in the next passage, as he's going through this, they set out, they do the preaching, 
And along with their preaching of the gospel, they're healing people as they go. But notice what happens. Herod gets wind of this. And all of their deeds that these disciples are doing, the doing of deeds by disciples, is going to draw attention to the Messiah. It's His power, right? It's His authority. And the purpose of their going out is to preach the good news of Jesus. That God has come in the flesh. They won't fully understand all of this until later, but they're beginning to. And they're to go out and to call the people to God. The signs and wonders accompany that. What Christians do, what people who follow Christ do, draws attention to the good news that Jesus came to seek and to save that which is lost. Therefore, if you are caught up, if I am caught up in the four walls of church world here, rather than loving and reaching out and seeking others, or if people look at us and think we're just like the world because we don't live any differently, then we're really not drawing attention to the Messiah, are we? We're not shining a spotlight on the star. We need to be aware of that so that everything that we do, just like them, is drawing attention to the one to whom attention should be drawn. <clears throat> the deeds of disciples magnify the Messiah. Herod's tripping. He doesn't understand it. But notice what happens. After we get through this, we have these almost disjointed stories. It's one of the ways that we can tell that they're connected. Because in other places, we see either clear transitions or a continuation. Here we take these stories that have some connections that don't seem evident at first. And it's like, man, Luke's been writing and he's got this smooth writing and then all of a sudden, choppy, choppy, choppy. Bam, bam, bam. And we see things like, who do you say I am? That connected. So, one of the things that we'll see in this next portion, in this feeding of the 5,000, is that some things seem impossible, don't they? You and I often run into situations that might seem like there is no chance that God's going to be able to, to fix this. And maybe you're in one of those impossible situations right now. Sometimes we, you know, we, we end up sick and ailing, maybe get a diagnosis of cancer, and we can become hopeless. Oh, man, what am I going to do? I, I thought things were going this way, but now they're going this way, and I don't see any way out of this. Maybe it's a hopeless marriage. Maybe it's a hopeless financial situation. Maybe you just don't know what you're going to do next. I've, I've been going in a particular direction, and I don't know where this ends, and I don't see any way for it to get fixed. It's crucial for, for us to recognize from this story that no problem is as big as Christ's provision. That's the purpose of this feeding of the 5,000. For the disciples to see and for you and I to see that no problem is as big as Christ's provision. Why would I say that? We've already seen miracles of Jesus. So Luke doesn't need to include any more miracles for us to get that Jesus is Lord over all physical and, uh, and spiritual creation. That's not news anymore. He's, for the last eight chapters prior to this, we've already seen it. We just came out of him telling the wind and the waves to chill out and they do it. We've just come back from him 
removing demons because demons tremble at the name of Christ. We've seen him raise a dead girl. I don't think we need another miracle to establish that he's Jesus, right? That he's, that he's the Messiah. But there is something in this that is different. Notice, they've been given power and authority, right? They're doing miracles. It's, it's awesome. They're, they're just, wow, I can't believe what we're doing. And we'll see that a little later, uh, a little later in the book. Not today, but a little later in the book. But they come out, they have the crowds. Remember, this is the same, the same area, same place where they were crushing against him like Beatlemania when they came back into Capernaum. So they're, they're trying to get away so they could get some private time, and the crowds follow them. They find them, they follow them. When they get there, Jesus welcomes them because that's what he does, right? Man, I just really needed a nap, but somebody needs me. And their needs are bigger than my needs. Because that's what the heart of Jesus does. He sets himself aside. Not to be ministered to, but to minister to others. If we're going to follow Jesus, that's the heart we need to have as well. Man, I had plans. But my plans just got trumped because somebody has a bigger need than my need for some relaxation, some recreation. So the crowds get there. And Jesus deliberately, you know it's deliberately because number one, he's Jesus. And number two, it's a foolish request. Whenever you see something that seems foolish in the scripture coming from God, you better know there's a point. That's a time to start marking it down and say, okay, whoa, wait a minute. If God says something that doesn't make any sense, there's a bigger sense that I need to grasp. He says to them, with 10,000 people out there, Hey, why don't you go feed them? Um, yeah, okay. Uh, well, what am I going to feed them? I just gave you power and authority to do miraculous things, right? Uh, but Jesus, we got a couple of lunches here. We can feed a couple of them, but if everybody took a bite from this, there's no chance. You want us to just go buy some food? Uh, that would be more money than all of us could put together from our entire year's salary. None of us can do that. These are not upper-class people we're talking about. Jesus is making a point. This is impossible. What he's asking them to do is impossible. And they need to grasp this idea that no problem is as big as Christ's provision. No need can negate Christ's power to provide. The omnipotent Christ can provide for impossible needs. Whatever your impossible is, that's where God starts. Jesus has given them power and authority to do all of these things. And they're blown away by that. But now something comes that seems bigger. There's no way. Yeah, I know we cast out demons. I know we miraculously heal sick people, but this is too big for us. Well, yeah, because it wasn't your power and authority in the first place. It was His. Well, this is too big for God. Right. But don't we say the same thing? We get depressed because we see no hope. We get fearful because we have this, this information gap. We don't know how things are going to turn out. We get overwhelmed and overcome because the situation seems too 
big, if we're honest, even for God. God can't save this. And we take the cop-out route of saying, well, of course God can save this, but yeah, I, I don't think that's his plan. Man, you don't know what his plan is. He fed 5,000 men plus the women and children with five loaves and two fish. Do you think they thought that was his plan? Impossible is where God starts. No problem is as big as Christ's provision. Notice what happens. He doesn't just meet their need. He meets their need in abundance. They need some food. They need lunch. These aren't starving people. There might be some starving among them, but in all likelihood they're not. They just haven't had lunch yet. They just need a, a little meal. He gives them enough to eat from what seems impossible for them to eat, and it says in here specifically, and be satisfied, meaning full. I don't want to eat anymore. I've eaten enough. You guys can identify with this after Thursday, right? No thanks. I'm good. I know that's pie, but if I have one more bite, I will explode. That's the idea that's taking place here. Out of five loaves and two fish, they had the biggest Thanksgiving meal anybody's ever had. And they were able to pick up enough leftover pieces to fill 12 baskets. So they, they started out with this much, and they ended up with this much after they're done eating. Why? Why does any of this matter? Because God wants you and I to know that whatever impossible situation you're in, whatever you can't get yourself out of, that's exactly what He wants. So that He can show you that there's no limit to his ability to provide. Now, God isn't looking to give you a Mercedes-Benz and a, you know, a house on the hill so that you can live in prosperity and be you know superstar. That's not what we're talking about. But what you need, he is able to give you, as Ephesians says in chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, immeasurably more then you're even capable of thinking of. You can't even ask or imagine enough to begin to tax God. Your biggest, wildest imagination isn't even scratching the surface. That's the God we serve. That's the Christ that they're following. That's the Christ that we are following. And following Christ, as we'll see, demands everything. But it gives even more. They had to come to the end of themselves to realize that. That there is no problem that is too big or even as big as Christ's provision. Now, in the midst of this, they've got the crowds following Jesus. Everybody's you know, checking them out. Even Herod, the king of the area, is... He wants to meet Jesus. I think it's hilarious, by the way, that, that Luke includes it. It just says he, he wanted to see him. Sucker! You don't get to see him. You can't get into the club. You're not VIP. Actually, you are VIP. And Jesus doesn't care about your VIP status. He is not a respecter of persons. He came to seek and to save that which is lost. I'll tell you right now, if Herod was coming to seek him, to say, Lord, save me, Jesus would have said, come on up. Let's go. Let's, let's talk. He does that every single time. But he was more concerned... <laughs> with the nameless woman in chapter 8 
who risks humiliation and physical difficulty to get to him. That's who he's, who he's reaching out to. How important do you think you are? Herod, psh, you think you're going to get to see the king of all creation? You better come on your knees, son. But the people are caught up in the celebrity of Jesus. Why are the crowds chasing him? Yes, he taught with authority. He's a good preacher. He's, he's a dynamic speaker. Although it's interesting, the scripture tells us he didn't have anything in himself that naturally would draw uh, people to him. He wasn't beautiful that we should look at him. He didn't look like Johnny Depp or Shamar Moore, as we were talking about. He, he didn't have that. If you don't know who Shamar is, check him out. That's a good-looking dude, you know what I'm saying? But that wasn't Jesus. Jesus is a very average guy to the flesh. And while he was a dynamic speaker, it wasn't because of his great prowess as a speaker that they followed him. It's because when he spoke, he spoke as one with authority. He's the author speaking about what he wrote. The people are coming around him not because they see him for who he is. Not coming on his terms, but coming on their terms. They want to get a piece of the rock star preacher. Imagine, if you would, Joel Osteen signing autographs on his books. Imagine, if you would, you know, I've just lost my illustration. I apologize. So all I can come up with is Michael Jackson, and that's not really going to work well. <laughs> Imagine Donald Trump shows up, and people are, are, are crowding around, and whether they love him or hate him, he's famous, right? That's kind of what's happening with Jesus. Everybody wants a piece of the guy. So they get away, and notice verse 18. Jesus is praying in private with his disciples. This is an alone time. We want to we slip off. Just us. The crowd's gone. But let's see where my guys are. And he says, who do the crowd say I am? And they, and they say the same thing that Herod saw. You know, some of them think you're John the Baptist back from the dead. Some of them think you're Elijah. Some of them think that you're one of the ancient prophets returned. Jesus has a deeper question. And this is the question that he's asking you and he's asking me today. What about you? I know what your church believes. I know what your, what your statements of faith are. But what about you? What do you believe? Who do you say that I am? Now notice, none of that changes anything about who Jesus is. It doesn't matter what the crowds think or Herod, or the disciples, or you or me. He doesn't change because we've defined him a certain way. What's true isn't true because I believe it. I need to believe it because it's true. Jesus says, who do you say I am? And Peter, always quick with the answer, whether he should or not. You know, sometimes he's got a whole mouthful of foot. But, but today, he says... The most profound thing. The other gospel writers elaborate on it. Luke just wants to make the point. You're the Christ of God. You're the Messiah. 
of Yahweh. You are the anointed one, the one who was foretold, the serpent crusher that we've been waiting for since Genesis 3. Since sin entered the system and everything went to pot, you're the one. That's all wrapped up in that little statement that Peter makes. You are the one, the consolation of Israel, the prince of peace, the one we've been waiting for. And notice what happens in verse 21. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. Before we clarify that statement, let's just let's dig in a little bit here and realize that disciples recognize identity over celebrity. Disciples recognize identity over celebrity. The crowds knew about him. As Peter expresses, the disciples know him. They don't just know what he did. They don't recognize the fame. They know him. I know of Barack Obama. I know of Donald Trump. But I know Dennis. I know Cheryl. I know Brad. I know you guys personally. I don't know those people in the White House. I have no personal connection. I know a lot of stuff about them. I can read, I can read Wikipedia like the rest of you. But, yeah, so anyway, but a real disciple, someone who's actually connected with Jesus, knows more than just stuff about Jesus. They know who he really is. This is why Jesus is transitioning here. Right now, in this moment, he is asking them this question because everything shifts. For the rest of the book, the, the focus will be away from Capernaum, away from Galilee, toward Jerusalem. And everything is coming to a culmination. And we're going to see this. Jesus is preparing them. He's saying, okay, you get it. Don't tell anybody. Because I have a job to do. I have a job to do that's bigger than what I've been doing so far. Before has been preparation for the kingdom. Now it's time for the kingdom. Notice what he says. I'm going to try not to get too far ahead of myself. Just don't tell anybody. Because the Son of Man, in verse 22, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law. And he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Jesus is saying, if you tell everybody now, if everybody gets it now, the celebrity will overcome my ability to do what I came here to do. We see that later on when they try to make him king. And when they can't make him king, they want to kill him. It's a pretty wide swing of the pendulum there. We want you to rule over us. Um, now we want you dead. We want you to overthrow Rome is really what it was. They're seeing political things, economic things, as if they were real. And they're missing out on the real life that is spiritual. The Messiah would come and do all of those things in the final consummation, the culmination of time, which we will get to on another time. In fact, during our Advent season, we'll talk a little bit about that. 
But when we look forward, we see the prophecies that are behind us in the Old Testament. They were still looking forward, and they were expecting a Messiah that would come and rule in power. Not one that is going to preach a gentle gospel to Gentiles. They want the Messiah to crush the Gentiles. Don't tell them yet. Preach the gospel that there is a way to be right with God. But don't, don't tell them what God has revealed to you because I have more work to do yet. That work is His mission. The Messiah's mission matters most. Jesus never loses sight of this. Messiah's mission matters most. It's not the miracles. It's not even the message. It's the mission. Why? The miracles are given to testify to the message, the good news, the gospel. That's why the miracles are there. That's why He gives them power and authority. And they are there to testify to the message. But the message is about the mission. And if Jesus doesn't complete the mission, then the message doesn't matter. Messiah's mission matters most. Notice what He says. The Son of Man, verse 22, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, by the chief priests, by the teachers of the law. Notice this. If those folks actually got it, so let's say they're sitting here with Peter and the apostles and they get it in this conversation. And they, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. I, I, you're right. I remember reading that. And we're going to elevate Messiah rather than fulfill the prophecies that say we're going to kill the Messiah. Then Jesus doesn't fulfill His mission to ransom us. If anyone, I'm sorry, uh, Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and He must be killed. Not elevated. Not celebrated. He must be killed. Jesus is going into the mission knowing that He must be killed. He doesn't love it. We'll see that later on. Eh, if, I could, if there's another way, I'd love, it. I'd love it if you'd give me a way out of this, Father. But it's not about what I want. It's about what is needful here. Must be killed. But he knows going into it on the third day to be raised to life. The mission matters most. I'd like to draw your attention to our memory verse for today. It's from Matthew chapter 20, verse 28. In speaking to his uh, apostles, and he's saying, look, you know, the, the people of this world, they lord their authority over other people. The boss likes to remind you that they're the boss. Amen? Anybody in that situation? You do what I say. The older brother likes to tell you, well, you know, what, what goes on, right, Jeff? The older brother likes to tell you how it's supposed to be. Okay? Jesus, not so with you. You need to humble yourself. If you want to be first in the kingdom, you've got to be last, man. Give up your place in line. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, not to be ministered to, but to minister, and to give 
his life as a ransom for many. That's the mission. That's what he came for. Now, if we're going to follow him, if we're going to follow him, what does it mean to follow? I'm going to walk in his steps. I'm going to do what he did. That's what he's saying to his disciples in Matthew 20, 28. If you're going to follow me, then you've got to be like me. Don't load your authority over people. Don't demand your rights. I washed your feet. I'm your master, and I stripped myself down to a loincloth so I could wash your filthy, nasty feet so that you would understand. This isn't about you demanding rights. Later he will tell them, stop rejoicing that you have authority over demons. Rejoice that your name is written in heaven. That's what matters. This isn't about you. If we're going to follow him, then we need to follow him all the way to the cross. If we're not willing to suffer and, yes, to die for him, or perhaps more difficult, to die for others, to live as if we had already died, my rights don't matter anymore. All that matters is carrying out the mission. Then we cannot honestly call ourselves followers of Christ. We're just watchers. Mark this. Real life begins with dying to self. Real life begins with dying to self. Verse 23. And he said to them all, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself take up his cross daily and follow me. That imagery is very clear to them. It might not be as clear to us because we got crosses all over the wall. You might be wearing a cross around your neck or as an earring or have it on a t-shirt or whatever. When they hear the term cross, they are thinking of the brutal execution of the vilest offenders. And Jesus is saying, if you want to follow me, this is before crucifixion is identified with him yet. They're not thinking in terms like we are. They're only thinking of this as the worst form of execution for the worst form of criminal. And he's saying, if you want to follow me, embrace that life. The cross life. There is no crown without a cross. Deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. Verse 24, for whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit his very self? If anyone's ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes into his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. There is no place for casual Christianity. We cannot be disciples of Christ and casual, comfortable Christians who fit in with the world. James, the brother of Christ, writes that friendship with the world is hatred toward God. It's enmity with God. When we choose to align ourselves with the, with the culture, with the world around us, when our primary associations are with this secular society, 
When our primary affiliations have to do with our comfort level rather than with Christ, then we have voluntarily created enmity between God and us. That's not what a disciple does. Real life begins, it starts with dying to myself. The Christ life is lived for others, following Him to the cross. He makes no bones about it. Count the cost. The reality of life is that following Christ demands everything, all of me. It demands that I give up my rights to embrace that which is greater. I may have to give up everything, literally, in this life. We've been talking about missionaries, or not missionaries, but, uh, but indigenous Christians in Uzbekistan, who just for gathering together were arrested. You may have to give up everything. Here in America, we got it pretty easy. You may have to give up some things. But Jesus says, whether the, whether the world around you is taking this from you, you need to lay it down. You have to let go of this life to take hold of real life. Real life in Christ. Why does any of this matter? (laughs) Why does it matter? Because we've often believed a comfortable lie over the hard truth. We've made Christianity so easy. Just pray a little prayer. You don't even have to tell anybody. Just, you know, it's just between you and Jesus. It's good. Slip your little hand up. Now listen, I, I don't want to belittle this. If For any of us here, I, I have come from that background where with every eye closed and every head bowed, you know, you put your hand up. That's great. We see, I see a hand over here. I see a hand over here. Been a part of that. But there's more. There's so much more than praying words It is as simple as praying a prayer from your heart. It's as simple as saying, Lord, I'm yours. Save me. I'm done driving. I want to just let you drive. I'm done being in control of this. I can't do it myself. I give up. I am going to die to myself and my way of doing things. I'm all yours. But if it's just my mouth, then I've lost the plot. It demands everything. Everything. How much? Everything. And if you're not sure, everything really does mean everything. It means you give up your right to hang on to your anger and bitterness toward the person that treated you badly. It means you give up your right to the people that oppressed you. It means you give up your right to whatever you think is your right. Just like Jesus did. Because that's what disciples do. It matters because if I think I can get away with a cultural Christianity where I sit in a nice warm church building, we're thankful for nice warm church buildings, right? But if I think that that's Christianity, coming here to hear a preacher preach to me and I don't have to act on it and I don't have anybody hold me accountable, if I think that that's Christianity, I am sadly, tragically, life-alteringly mistaken. 
because I can't be saved by that gospel. Following Jesus is all or nothing. I have to put all my chips in the middle of the table because it's only Him. It's only Jesus. There is nothing else. If I miss that, then I have missed everything. This can impact my daily living because when I'm following Him, when I die to myself to embrace life in Christ, then my priorities, my problems, people, my perspective, all of it changes. And I can say with Paul, for me, to live is Christ, man. It's Christ. It's only Christ. Jesus. Only Jesus. And to die physically, to leave this world, that's what I'm waiting for. Now, I'm not talking about suicidal. I'm not, you know, oh, I can't take it anymore. I'm ending it. Wrong. But to get to be with him face to face is bigger than any fear I could possibly have of what's on the other side. Because I don't know. But I know who's waiting for me. So none of this matters. None of this matters. There's rain in the forecast for the next 10 days. It doesn't matter. They might have towed your car while you're at church. It doesn't matter. Your spouse might be leaving you right now. It doesn't matter. Your children might be living in rebellion. It doesn't matter. You might have cancer that you might not recover from. And it doesn't matter. You might have sins that are perplexing you, plaguing you. And it, you just can't seem to see past that. And you don't know if you can ever get it fixed. It doesn't matter. It's only Jesus. I'm not saying any of those things aren't hard. Embrace the cross. Embrace the cross. For just as the Son of Man did not come to serve, did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many, you and I, in following Christ, must die to ourselves to embrace the reality that is life in Christ. Let's close in prayer. Father in heaven, you have given us more. Not only than we deserve, but more than we could possibly ever deserve. More than we could possibly ever think to ask for in giving us your son Jesus. Remind us, Lord, that Jesus alone is real life. In his name we pray this. Amen. Amen. Let's stand for the closing song.